This is Top Floor, episode 85. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 85. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. When I started this podcast, I started with the loading dock and worked my way up to the top floor. What I mean by that is that my first idea was to create a show around the wild and wonderful stories of hospitality. Those that rarely make it beyond the break room or the banquet hallway or the loading dock. Every time I tell one of my loading dock stories, someone says, you should write a book. Well, today's guest took all of the loading dock stories from his 30 plus year career in restaurants and did exactly that. Michael Checky Azalina's book, Your Table is Ready, had me cracking up laughing, shivering with recognition, and honestly crying my eyes out. It's one of the only books I think about the restaurant business that rings true to my lived experience, like what actually happened in a restaurant. And it gave me the same feeling as being deep in the weeds, like what I got when I was watching The Bear on TV. Michael has worked as captain and maitre d' at New York's best restaurants, including the Water Club, the River Cafe, Raoul's, and Le Cuckoo. And he is in the process of opening his eponymous restaurant, Chucky's, in the next few weeks. Today, we are going to talk about restaurants, period. But before we do, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals, random strangers, and anybody else who has a burning question. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Michael, today's question was submitted by me. It's me. I am the question submitter because I have this thing that I read about in your book that I've always wanted to ask someone, but I've always been too embarrassed to. And that is about palming or duking a tip, like where you put a bill in your hand and shake someone's hand so that they sneakily, secretly get the money. I don't think I could ever pull that off. I feel like I would be so awkward and so dorky. But I know you can probably tell me how to do it. So what should I do? That's a a great question. That's a lot of fun. Um, So, uh, you know, there are so many ways that people hand you money. And it's interesting because they're the, you know, the swells who are very well practiced at this. And they just reach out to shake your hand. And you know that hand has something in it. It's just this one little gesture. And it's like, and they don't look at your hand. They look at your eye. They put their hand and say, 
hi, Michael. They know my name. Hi, Michael. Great to see you. Or hi, my name is Mr. Jones. Um, here for dinner tonight. Wonder if you would help me get a great table. It's just it's that one simple gesture like that. I've had people walk up to me and put money right down in front of me on the maitre d' <laughs> and done it that way. Um, and I've had people walk in the door and they said, especially when I said look cuckoo. I would get a lot of people asking for tables. And as I've said many times, I've never sold a table. If people would like to thank me for what I've done for them, that's a whole different story. Um, But a woman had been calling me and calling me for a table and didn't have it. It was for her boss. And she came in the door and she says, hi, Michael, I am blah, blah, blah. I've been contacting you. I'd like a table. Will this help you? She said, I'm so embarrassed. I don't know how to do this, but I have money for you. And what should I do? <laughs> I That's said, what she said. That's so, that said. is so what she, I would do. She was so right up front. Um, so look, she had been trying to get a table. And like I said to you, I said, I'm sorry, I, I really can't take your money. I, I don't, I don't sell tables, but it's very sweet and very kind of you to do this. Now, if someone had come in just for themselves and asked for a table and said, I don't know what to do. Please tell me how to give you money. I say, you know what? I don't want your money. I would love to get you a table. <laughs> Especially if I have one. Because always, so you know, can always work something out some of the time. And if not that night, another night. So, but the best and coolest way to do it is just reach out, look the person in the eye, have the bill folded up in your hand and press it into the other person's hand. Because the receiving end, if they're restaurant professionals, they know it's coming. You know it. <laughs> there's okay. No, there's no secret. I'm still scared to try it, but maybe I'll like practice on my husband or something and see if I can perfect the move. I would think you would be great. You've been in the industry for so long. I'm such a nerd. Come on, man. I can't do that. So your book starts by describing the experiences in your childhood that led to your career in restaurants. You were an altar boy. You emptied ashtrays and cleared glasses at your mom's Sunday dinners, which felt very familiar to me. And you alternated between working and stealing at the candy store in your Brooklyn neighborhood. It strikes me that all of those experiences also kind of involved a a good amount of acting, which you pursued while you were working in restaurants. I'm interested in your take on why serving tables and playing characters seem to be so intimately tied together. Like what about those two vocations, if for lack of a better word, uh, attract them to each other? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think there's two ways to answer this question. One, in, in terms of my background and my childhood, being adaptive and playing different personalities was a survival tactic. I need to do it in my neighborhood. I need to do it with certain members of my family. Um, uh, it's how you got by. I was always the smallest person in the neighborhood. I grew up in a very tough, at the time, Brooklyn neighborhood. And you're, you're bobbing and weaving. And you really learn survival skills by really changing your persona, depending on who you're with. If you're with the tough guys, you're acting tough. If you're with the sports guys, you're acting you know, like a jock. It was always the best way to get yourself not not beat up <laughs> or, not, or, or not killed. It's survival skills. And we, we learn that, especially if you come from broken families. I think kids who do that, definitely. But I think the other answer to this is that restaurants are theater. They're just naturally a place that we go to for an experience. 
You know, look, we, we go to restaurants to eat food, but that's not why we go. We go to restaurants to celebrate. We go to restaurants to find a date. So many different reasons. And of course, food food is one of them. And when you walk into the proper restaurant, you're, you're entering the stage set. You know, some of the great, beautiful restaurants in the world, that's what they are. Um, Le Cuckoo, I'll use it again, was designed by Roman and Williams. And they started their career as set designers. And that is like the most beautiful set in the world. And it's yeah. where they designed it. So you're just, a, you're a player in this. So if you're acting and, and um, if you've been an actor and you have those skills, it naturally adapts to restaurants because you, your audience comes in every day and you're there to entertain, to serve, to provide the experience, you know, someone will give you a pleasant experience and be able to talk to you and converse with you. So it, it, it blended in seamlessly for me. It's also able to be nice when the table that they're waiting on is packed with a bunch of jerks. That's a quite the acting job. <laughs> Absolutely. So. And well, and not everyone can do it. Even the best actors sometimes can't do it because it gets it can get really, really hard. And you've got to really bite your lip and try to get through the night. Or not. You know, in which case you end up with a problem. You have an angry customer, an angry boss, an angry chef. Uh, you know, it it can get really bad. And an empty pocket. So the role of maitre d' has changed a lot over the years. Can you describe how it used to be, what happened, and what it's more like now? Yeah. So the maitre d' traditionally was the most experienced person in the room. Start worked his way up from who knows dishwasher to busser to server to captain, and then became the maitre d', the head of the room who ran the room was over uh, overseer of service uh saw the reservations gave people the seats they needed to, you know the tables that they they should get he plotted out the dining room he was the most experienced person in the dining room and for years this held true what happened was in the 90s the irs cracked down this is america i'm talking about the irs cracked down on tipping and they thought that the maitre d' was actually a manager, and managers can't receive tips. Now, maitre d's and the really good restaurants, restaurants that have maitre d's, made a lot of money. You know, you were paid usually minimum wage by the house, and then you made your tips. You were in the tip pool, you made tips at the door, and that's how you made your living. When their IRS said that you can't do that, well, no one wanted to pay a maitre d' six-figure salaries. So restaurants, uh, well, those who could afford did it. Those who couldn't wound up hiring hosts, and they became suddenly went from the most, uh, the highest paid, most experienced person in the room to the least experienced, least paid person in the room. You put someone at the door at minimum wage, and all they had to do was say, "Hi, do you have a reservation? Yes, walk this way," and that was it. So it, it changed drastically. Now, of course, the certain higher end restaurants kept the maitre d's. Um, uh, they paid them, and they made them managers. And so they weren't tipped from the floor any longer, though they could accept money from the door. So it changed. So you lost this person that was the, you know, who knew everything there was to know about service to someone who didn't. So you went, then you had managers on the floor taking a much more responsibility, you know, overseeing the reservations, taking care of service and all of that. My first restaurant job was as a host. And I can still remember the outfit that I wore because it was so wrong for that job. I think I had on like four inch heels. And by the time the shift was over, I wanted to cut my feet off. <laughs> 
I was a moron, clearly. The pacing of your book makes the reader feel this sense of urgency and like the manic energy of working a really busy shift on the floor. And you tell a lot of stories about people drinking and using drugs at work. Why do you think that restaurants attract addictive personalities? You've got an environment of uh, a party atmosphere in most restaurants. You have easy access to a bar and a very high-pressured environment. And one just leads to the next. Um, you know, um, I already said I'm from a damaged family. And you, you, know, you, you have your survival skills. And usually people coming through their their childhood, their adolescence, teenage years, uh, when it's very troubled, they turn to drugs and alcohol. And it's very easy to slide into a restaurant job. And they've been always been readily available. It really takes a certain personality to do that and to cope with it. And so many people that I've known through the years, myself included, turn to alcohol and drugs just to get through that shift. So you're not talking about many people getting into the restaurant business who have, you know, really wonderful backgrounds and, and families that have supported them and paid for their schooling. And, you know, they were on a career track. They're there to get through that shift. A shift in a restaurant is such an emotional roller coaster. But then when you're done, it's not like you're like, all right, time for bed. You know, you're tired, but you're wired. So and wired. You have to have some decompression time. And what are you going to do from midnight? till 4 a.m. like play croquet probably not right <laughs> you go you go out and drink with exactly friends. and there you know I, I it's this way in new york that there's so many local bars that are the places that everyone goes after a shift mm -hmm. in fact i had a chapter in my book that was on, was on the, the chef cuisiniers club the ccc club uh created by three very famous chefs and their thing was that they wanted it to be a place for kitchen people to come after work and well kitchen people came after work and Boy, they came to drink, <laughs> to pound it down. Yeah. I'm not sure if the same is true in the restaurant business, but a lot of people in the hotel business, which is where I spent most of my career, talk about having a hospitality heart or like being born to serve people. And to be honest, that stuff makes me roll my eyes to the point of spraining my face. I don't think that you have to be born feeling like a servant to have a great career in hospitality. Like, you know, there's this whole misinterpretation of a very famous saying, which is Caesar Ritz, when he opened the Ritz, the first one talked about ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And I think that's been misinterpreted to this like, oh, we all act fancy all the time when in fact he was really referring to the idea that the staff deserved to be respected and weren't expected to behave in a particularly subservient way. So all of this long preamble to say, what's your take? Is there such a thing as a servant personality for hospitality and I was just, was I just born without it or is that a, a misinterpretation of how it works 
You know, you talk about the psychological makeup of people and what makes people who they are and why they're like that. What I've encountered, and some people really love to please other people, and they, they, I honestly, they have this hospitality gene. Now, is it nature and nurture? I'm not sure, but they're in there. And look, Will Gadara just put a book out on, on what hospitality is. Now, why does he write this whole book on it? It's in his blood. You know, and I'm not sure what the reason is, but it's like that. Though many people getting into the business, they're there because it's a way to make ends meet. And they could give a darn about hospitality. They'll put they'll put the smile on and when they have to, and they're there to make money and they don't care. And some people really care about people. I, I'm one of those people. Look, I can't tell you the number of people that I've been with in the restaurant business that just got washed out. They just couldn't do it. It was the alcohol, drugs got too much for them. The pressure was too much for them. So, you know, is it a gene? Is it natural? Um, I'm not sure. I think for me, it was learned behavior. And, you know, as I grew up and being an actor, I wanted to create experiences. You started your table is ready a few years ago and then finished it during the pandemic. Can you talk about your creative process and what happened to allow you to be able to finish the book? Yeah, absolutely. I have stories and I have a lot of stories, which are in my book, obviously. But I would tell these stories to my customers and to, to other servers and to owners and managers and blah, blah, blah. And they all say, you should write this down. You should write this down. So after about 30 years, I figured, you know what? Let me write this down. So I just <laughs> started writing stories down. I thought this would be fun. And it was a way to kill time when I was closing the restaurant at Look Who Cool. After the last table was seated, I got a bunch of it written and I would show it to some people and saying, what do you think? Should I keep doing this? Should I not keep doing this? Luckily, there's a lot of writers that I've you know met over the years. Um, one was Alan Richman, um, who has about 30 uh, uh, beard awards for his books and his articles and writing. So I would show it to Alan and he'd, and he'd say, you know, you got something here. And he basically, for the first hundred pages of my book, took me to school and said, no, this is what you need to do. And this is what you need to do. And after about uh, maybe a month of back and forth, said, okay, you're a writer, take it away. Oh, wow. Yeah, no. And I had other people look at it as well, but he gave me confidence. And it's nice to get confidence from, from a renowned writer. You know, it, it gives you the, the ability to say, okay, well, maybe I could go to the next step now. Um, then my youngest daughter was born and that put a crimp in all the writing. And I just honestly stopped. I was working full time and, you know, being a, a, a new parent, uh, well, not a new parent, but uh, having a, a, an infant around, you don't have time, you don't sleep and you're not writing. You know, if if I was closing the restaurant, I'd try to close my eyes for 10 minutes instead of writing <laughs> And then the pandemic hit and restaurants closed and I found myself uh, doing nothing. In fact, I really haven't, I didn't take a job in a restaurant since the pandemic, except to open my own and to write the book. But during the pandemic, early on, someone sent me an email that a customer of hers had forwarded to her saying that yeah, this, this gentleman uh, runs the writer's boot camp out in L.A., and he loved restaurant people and he wanted to give back. So he was offering scholarships to restaurant people who happened to be writers. And he would give them oh, a cool. scholarship to a 10-week session in the boot camp. So they sent me this. He said, I know you're a writer. Why don't you do, you know, if you want to apply. I applied and I got the scholarship. And this scholarship allowed me to finish the book. Uh, you had to write at least two hours every day. So I'd write two hours in the morning and two hours at night, which I was able to do. And I finished. 
And when the book was finished, it gets read by the head of the, the, the organization who's running the, 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 the seminar. And he said, Michael, this is really good. Um, and I got some really good feedback from it, which was great. As this happened, I get a text from one of my regular customers who I hadn't seen in now probably a year and a half, just checking in. He said, what have you been doing? I said, well, I haven't worked, but um, I wrote a book. He said, oh, what is it? So I told him it was basically a, a, a front of house kitchen confidential. So that sounds great. I said, well, if you happen to know an agent, um, <laughs> an agent. he said, okay, I might, I might. And the next day I get an email from an agent. <gasps> uh, who is from Sterling Lord Literistic, which is one of the biggest agencies in the world. And he said, I heard about this book. Would you send it to me? And I did. And a month later, he said, we want to sign you. I love it. And then he sent it out to publishers. And we got it published in about a month. Well, accepted in about a month. And then we uh, edited it. And that took, took about a year to get to print. So it, was it happenstance? I don't know. Was it meant to be? I think so. I really do. But, you know, to everyone out there who's, who's, who's writing or in the creative fields, you just got to keep doing it. You know, you just got to keep doing it. And if it's supposed to happen, it will. That's an amazing story. And all of the pieces that lined up to make it happen. It gives me hope. Maybe I'll still write a book, Michael. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing you were doing while you were writing the book during the pandemic was thinking about plotting and planning for your restaurant. And it is opening soon, Checkies. Can you tell us all about the concept, your vision, some of the things that a guest can expect as long as she can palm a tip to get it? <laughs> it's, it's, it's always not necessary. We don't... like. I never sold the table, nor am I maitre d' sell the table. But, you know, it sort of happened that way. In the middle of the pandemic, I didn't know what I was going to do, actually. I didn't think I was going to go back to the restaurant business. I thought I was done. Um, and my older daughter, uh, we were out to dinner one night, said, Dad, what are you going to do? What's your next step? I said, I don't know. She said, Dad, it's checkies. You've got to do this. And... She was right. I got on my bike and I rode up and down every block and looked at spaces that were available. And uh, one day I was just, I wasn't finding anything that was right. And things were starting to be to be rented. Um, and I, I went down this one street. I said, let me take a look. And there was a restaurant I know had been there for about 35 years called Café Lou, uh, French for Wolf, L-O-U-P. And it was closed. And I knew that was the space. This was an iconic New York restaurant, and this is what I wanted. So what did I decide to do with this restaurant? I wanted to create the quintessential New York West Village restaurant that just bled, soaked, you know, emitted New York City, which is me. You know, I, I spent my whole life here. And it was the perfect space for this. I think it's the perfect space for, me to, for this to happen. And I wanted to do something simple and basic. I didn't want to invent the wheel. I wanted to do whatever the version of an American bistro was because I love bistros. You know, give me pate and escargot and duck. It's my favorite kind of food. Same. I wanted the American version of this, but bistro never sounded right because it's a French word. And what are American bistros? And what is American food? <laughs> you know, you don't sit in, in, in your apartment in Rome and saying, hey, let's fly to New York for American food. <laughs> it, it doesn't, it, what is it, you know? Mm -hmm. if, if maybe in New Orleans, you, you know, that's true American cooking and all, but I know what American food is to me. And it was always the bars and grills 
that lined my neighborhood in Brooklyn and a bar and grill like a bistro. So I asked Daniel Rose, Chef Daniel Rose, Chef, what's a bistro? And he said, a bistro is a guy or a woman from Alsace who has their mother's recipes in their back pocket, takes the train to Paris, finds the first spot they can afford and opens a restaurant. And so the equivalent for me were these bars and grills in that lined Brooklyn. And uh, it was a couple from the neighborhood or a couple of guys. They started a bar, put a kitchen in the back, and the sign said bar and grill, and it said steaks, chops, and seafood. And these are some of my greatest meals. And so I'm opening a modern bar and grill that will be steaks, chops, and seafood in a fun, relaxed, I think sexy environment. Um, that you can come in and eat three or four times a week if you want. There will be light things on the menu, rich things on the menu, but just your basic comfort food. I'll have a burger, grilled steaks, you know, simply prepared fish, great salads, really well done. My chef uh, was the chef at Almond in New York for many years and has been running around the country consulting. He's ready to get back home. My executive sous chef was a sous chef at Le Coucou. So I have this great blend of, of, of really fine dining chefs that want to get back to the basics and create just really good eating bar and grill food, American food. I love it. Did you see the movie, The Menu? Yes, I did. Okay. So, you know, at the end when she, the character gets to escape because she orders a burger, it's sort of (laughs) symbolic to me, right? Of like this big transition that's happening in cuisine right now. Fine dining restaurants are starting to maybe lose some of their cachet and appeal and concepts like the one that you just described for Checky are really having a moment like this. Look, we don't want to spend $800 a head, but we do want something good and worth it. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think it's, you know, I think both have always been popular and both will continue to to last. Um, Look, how many people can afford to eat an $800 meal? You know, it's, it's, I can't, it's ridiculous. I can't do it, but there is a segment of the population that can, and there's a segment of the, of, of the restaurant world that excels at this, you know, the great chefs that really create incredible, incredible things. And you can't do it at 50 ahead. It takes a lot of money to some of these truly magnificent meals on a plate. I think there will always be a demand for that. It just, it just, it's, it, that's the way it is. But I think even the people who go to these restaurants really want to sit down, kick back and have a really great dinner in a comfortable environment. I can't wait to go. <laughs> I can't wait to have you. <laughs> I want to see that smiling face sitting at my <laughs> We like to make sure that all of our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with a couple of specific practical tips or ideas to try either in their personal lives or in their business. You give great advice about how to get restaurant reservations when you're not a celebrity or you know head of state. Can you share a couple of those suggestions with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the hardest reservations are in obviously the most popular restaurants. And I'm speaking big cities here because that's my experience, but um, it happens in small cities as well. And, you know, who gets those reservations? It, dining rooms are limited and great restaurants are generally not that big. Um, so you have to be 
somewhat selective. So let's let's take Le Cuckoo, for example. It uh, was given the Beard Award for the best new restaurant in America, was considered written up as the best restaurant of the century. Um, it, it was in high demand. The chef, Daniel Rose, had two successful restaurants in Paris, was very famous. We were booked two months before we opened. Oh, wow. Just by people who knew Daniel Rose. And they heard about this was happening and they got in right away. Now, once that happens in your book and reviews come in, everybody wants to eat there. So who gets these reservations? Obviously, your regulars. You know, the cuckoo is new. Um, it, it soon, we soon had quite a few regulars. But restaurants that have been in existence a while have their regulars. And you have to take care of your regulars. That's your bread and butter. You want those people to come back. It's a business and you need to stay in business. Then if in the high profile restaurants, well, all the celebs want to go. They want to go to be seen. They want to have a good meal. You have the politicians that want to go because they want to, you know, bring in uh, their, their their benefactors, etc. You have the richest people in the world who want to make reservations. You have your neighbors trying. So everyone's vying for this. And so reservations go fast. The chef has friends. The owner has friends. You have your regulars. You have the celebrities. And you take the celebrities. Why? Because you want celebrities in the dining room only? No, but we all like to go into a restaurant and look, that's Meryl Streep over there. Right. It's, <laughs> it's part of it's, the entertainment. Of course it is. It's great. So you want to blend your dining room, but also you don't want to have all celebrities because it gets kind of boring and it doesn't last. They're not all going to, they're not going to keep you in business. So you try to blend it with everyone in. So you get online and you try to make the reservation. It's booked. You call, it's booked. The best thing to do is walk into the restaurant. Interesting. Yeah. Introduce yourself and say, hi, I am dying to eat here. It's so hard to get in. What can I do? Honestly, any restaurateur work worth his salt, any great maitre d', will, they will do their darndest to get you a table. I know I did. I had a woman that must have called 12 times at Le Cuckoo to try to get a reservation and constantly got rejected. And I didn't take phone calls back then because I've been on the phone forever. I, as you can tell, I love to talk. <laughs> and next thing you know, we're talking about the kids and who's going to school and what's going on. I just didn't have the time to do it. One day the door swings open and this tiny woman walks in the door and said, who's this checkie? And I happened to be standing right there. I said, that's me. Just, I've been trying to get into this restaurant for a month. Why can't I get a table? And I looked at her and I said, lady, I will give you a table any day of the week. Oh, that's awesome. She was great. And she's become one of my best customers. We've become friends. Looking at it from a different angle, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes that restaurant owners make when they open a new place that you are planning to avoid at Chuckie's? Well, one, you need enough money. <laughs> um, I think, you know, what is it? 85% of restaurants go bankrupt um, in, in within five years. It's a tough business. But I think the biggest mistake is a lot of people open restaurants don't know what it actually takes to open a restaurant. A lot of restaurants, and I'll, I'll keep to New York City because I know it best, are, run, are open by people with a lot of money that know how to make reservations. They know how to order food. They know what the restaurant vibe is like. They love it. They want to be a part of it, but don't get that. It's a 24 seven operation and you've got to commit to it. You can't just hire a few managers to run your place and be absentee. It might work. It works for some people, but it's very difficult. Um, you need to understand what this takes and how difficult it is from ordering your linen, ordering food, seeing what the prices are, how to book the room, et cetera. You better staff that restaurant with 
people that know what they're doing. And if you don't, you're in big, big, big trouble. A billion things can happen and a billion things can go wrong. And I guarantee you, and Susan, you know this as well as I do, it happens every day. <laughs> my, I don't think I told you this, but my sister and her husband are restaurant owners. And before they were restaurant owners, they were restaurant workers. My sister's a sommelier and her husband is a chef. And they helped this couple open a very fancy um, brasserie style restaurant in Denver, Colorado. And that restaurant stayed open for eight months. My sister and her husband say that they comped their way into bankruptcy. Oh, the owners of that restaurant were so intent on showing off, showboating that it was their place that they would comp their friends all the time and, you know, send out rounds of drinks and all this stuff. And, and a very successful restaurant ended up failing because they just couldn't keep the money in the door. You know, one of the first great restaurateurs I worked for was Buzzy O'Keefe, uh, owner of the Water Club, River Cafe, etc. And Buzzy's edict was, no one gets comped. <laughs> People come in this restaurant, they can afford it. And you, if, if you comp something, it's someone who can't afford it, who's here and they're struggling and maybe you'll buy them something. But he never did it because it can definitely get out of hand. And so, you know, there's there's a balance there. And I think you want to, you know, you you keep your comps at, at, at 2% of, of your sales that night or 1%, you know, up to 1, one to percent depending on the restaurant. But you got to watch. You got to watch your bartenders because every free drink the bartender gives out, he's getting bigger tip. And so you got to keep your eyes open. This is why restaurants fail. You know, the, you, the example you gave was they did it intentionally. But what about when you're not doing it intentionally? People can will give away the house. Oh, I'll buy you dessert. You know, the server buy them dessert because they're looking for an extra tip. The bartenders will buy the drinks they want to get the extra tip. Here, have this little freebie. Have a freebie. Have a freebie. You really have to rein that in. And you got to watch what's going on in your restaurant. We have reached the fortune telling portion of our program. Yay. So we're going to predict the future and then I'll come back later and see if you were right. What is a prediction? I'm so excited to hear you talk about this. Okay. What is a prediction that you have about the future of tips, compensation, and service charges in restaurants? The reason I'm asking this is most people don't carry cash anymore. Yeah. So is that changing the nature of the beast when it comes to tips and compensation? Yes, it changes the nature of the beast when there's no cash. And I think, sadly, major D is going to be affected most. Though people who know, you know, will always carry cash on them because they do want to tip that person. And most people are tipping the major D because... They like that person. That person works hard for them, gets them reservations, remembers the names of their kids, remembers the names, you know, where they went to school, knows the mistresses, knows the wives, know when they got divorced, that it's worth it to them to do that. Yeah, it makes them feel important. Yes, absolutely. And we, look, we all want to be recognized and noted. And tipping helps that. It really does. Now, um, Danny Meyer, the probably the greatest restaurateur in America, with along with Stephen Starr and a few others, Eliminated until you open yours. Of <laughs> course. <laughs> he, well, I'm talking on a grand scale, you know. Yeah. He eliminated tipping in his restaurants, and it didn't work. And I'll tell you why it didn't work. He couldn't afford to pay his front of house people what they were making in tips. It was a lot of money, and the way tips are structured in 
in uh, in New York City for sure, I think most of America, is that unless you're unless you're front facing guests, you cannot receive a tip. And you have to be facing a guest 80% of your time in the restaurant. So people who work in the kitchen, people who work in the basement, you know, the, the prep cooks and all that cannot mm-hmm. share in the tip pool. So what happens? Here's what's going to happen. And I'll tell you. So Danny couldn't do it because he lost his best people. They went to at Le Cuckoo. We opened. We had a bunch of people from uh, uh, his, his, his restaurants. They came in. People want to tip. It's ingrained in our society. Uh, when it's not there, even when it wasn't there, people still wanted to do it. So my prediction is that what will happen, there'll be a balance where the back of house people who can't get tips will receive much more compensation, um, which they weren't getting. And I think it was abused, very much abused. All my years coming up, the guys in the kitchen cooks mostly made minimum wage. These these men and women who were making you a uh, $175 tomahawk steak were making 12 to $15 an hour. That is sinful. And most of the cooks I worked with had two jobs and working seven days a week just to make ends meet. And these were some of the hardest working people that you'll ever encounter in your life. The pandemic leveled the playing field. They left and they said, you know what? I haven't worked. I see my family. I can get by doing other things. I'm not going to do this. And so they didn't come back. And I think for a year, we didn't have a talent pool. The talent pool is coming back right now because pay has gone up. And it's gone up 30, 40%, and it has to happen. So you're, you know, you've got to figure out what you're going to charge because it has to be real. And people are going to be paying more money in restaurants, which you, you're seeing effect now, not just inflation, but, but wages have gone up, but it has to be balanced. So I think you'll see better paid people in the back of house with benefits and all, just like most businesses do, like real businesses is how it should be, the real business model, and the front of house will still be getting their tips. That's my prediction. Okay, excellent. If you could wave a magic wand and recreate one dish or beverage from your past, what would it be? Oh, God. So the dish from my past is my mother's tomato sauce. (laughs) Interesting. I I actually do make it. And I think I make it better than her because I I can afford better ingredients there. But in terms of in terms of restaurants, um, one of the greatest meals I've ever had was at a restaurant called the Quilted Giraffe. And it was a rack of lamb with a chestnut crust. Uh, Barry Wine was the chef. It was a four star restaurant in New York. And that dish, I I must have had it 30 years ago. And I remember it like it was yesterday. I would love to eat that again. Ooh, that sounds delicious. Delicious. And drinks, honestly, for me, the perfect drink is a great martini. I could not agree more. That is my drink of choice. A Hendrix martini up with a twist. There you go. Done. Drop the check. (laughs) Okay, folks. Before we tell Michael goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Michael, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? We had a regular customer at Raul's who would come in all the time, very flamboyant gentleman, hair down to his shoulders, outrageously dressed all the time, always had two or three models with him, would sit down. Sometimes he wore a kilt with no underwear. Oh, my. Would, we knew there was no underwear under it because he would show off his business sometimes, <laughs> which no one wanted to see. 
but this was a different time and he tipped relatively well. And so, you know, you, you did what you had to do. <laughs> he was never thrown out because ultimately he was pretty fun. And the, the people he brought in were, were a lot of fun. He walks in one day and he says, Michael, you're an actor, aren't you? I says, I am. He says, I need you to play a role for me. What? He says, I need you to marry me. What? I need you to marry me. What do you mean? He says, well, my wife to be, we're expected to get married next Saturday. There's a hundred Norwegians that have flown into New York to attend the ceremony and she won't sign the prenup. He says, so we need to stage a bogus wedding. He says, you got to be kidding. He says, I says, he says, no, I'm not kidding. Will you do it? He says, well, what does your wife say? She's in on it. I said, okay. So I calculated what it would cost me to take off work on a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. And I doubled it. And I said, this is what it'll cost. He said, okay, <laughs> do it. And I went home and I researched wedding ceremonies, got dressed up, conducted the ceremony and married them. That is incredible. Albeit, yeah. Albeit it was a fake wedding, <laughs> but, but after it, you know, people came up to me and said, oh my God, that was wonderful. You know, where did you learn this? So instead of lying, I had I'd gone to graduate school at Harvard and I was there for theater. And we rehearsed all the time in the Harvard Divinity School because they had a big area. So they said, so where did you know? What, <laughs> I said, oh, I spent, I was at Harvard Divinity School, <laughs> which was true. <laughs> <laughs> not, not as a minister. Oh but, my god! Hey, look, you said uh, take an actors. What? What's actors in the business? Yep. That's what you do. Oh, you know? that's incredible. Cast of characters, no matter who comes in. I yeah. have officiated two weddings and one funeral, and I am ordained in the Church of the Internet, whatever that one is. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> now I've had to do a little bit of fancy footwork, but nothing to that degree. That is unbelievable and amazing. Did they ever end up getting married? Like, did they ever? They did. Okay. They did. Yeah, they did. And had a child. Yeah. So it had a happy ending. Fantastic. Well, I guess because I hope she got what she wanted. <laughs> Michael Checky Azalina, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners are lining up outside the door of Checky's when it opens, and I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Susan Barry, thanks for inviting me, and I'm glad to make it out of the basement to the top floor. <laughs> or the loading room, I should say. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 85. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 